if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Good morning, everyone. For those of you who haven't met me, I'm Pastor Vance. I'm a volunteer teaching pastor here at Resurrection Church. I got to ask something before we get into the message, all right? Now, I can't really see you very well, so um, just kind of bear that in mind because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But how many of us showed up for church thinking they were showing up for the 9 o'clock service and discovered it's the 11 o'clock service. Anybody? Okay, I can't see any hands. So either you guys are all here because you plan to be or some people are fibbing. So it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that you're here. And we also want to welcome the folks online too to our service. Um, the time change has an interesting history with me. Um, Early in my ministry, my wife Linda and I were attending a church in uh, La Mirada, which uh, I was a student at Talbot Seminary back then, and I was scheduled to speak at a college group as the guest teacher, and it happened to be Time Change Sunday. So we both got ready, showed up, and as we showed up, everybody was leaving. You know what happened, right? So, the time change, I'm always very, very aware of that, okay? So, anyway, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 5, especially verse 1, but also verses 1 through 5 this morning. So, I invite you to go there in your Bibles, whether you have a printed copy, whether you have an app, or you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. Um, Our message that we're calling this morning is Finding Real Peace. All right, And it's the last message in our series that we've been doing on the Romans Road. Now, let me start things off with a true story before we get into these verses in Romans chapter 5. In 1510, so this is going back quite a ways, a German monk named Martin Luther was anxious to free his grandfather from purgatory. Now, while Luther was in Rome on business with his monastery, he purchased what was called an indulgence. And then with other devout people like himself, he took his indulgence and he began climbing the steps of Scala Santa, which still exists in Rome to this day. On each step, he said the Lord's Prayer. And you can see in this photograph from the movie Luther, the actor John Fenne is doing this, reenacting this scene. He's the guy that's dressed in black. He's portraying Martin Luther. The piece of paper that he has in his hand is the indulgence, okay? When he finally reached the top of the stairs, he turned around and he looked at all these people toiling up these stairs, some of them having a lot of physical disabilities, uh, crippling diseases, but doing their best to do the same thing that he did, and a thought occurred to him. Luther wondered, 
Who knows if this is true? In other words, what I just did, is it any good? And later, he took that piece of paper, that indulgence, and he threw it away. You see, Luther was honest enough to realize that despite all his efforts and his works, he had no peace in his heart. It was not until later, several years later, when he had been ordered by his spiritual mentor to study and to teach the Bible, and he began teaching books like Galatians and our book of Romans that we have here, that he finally discovered real peace, peace with God. And so the main idea, guys, that we're going to be focusing on If I had to put it in simply one sentence, the message theme is this. It's only through Jesus that we have peace with God. All right? Now, this is the last, the fifth message in our series, Romans Road, where we have been focusing on certain key passages in the book of Romans, uh, learning basically about our salvation, about the gospel, and then also how we can share this with others. So let me just review really quick what we've gone through over the last several weeks. First of all, we looked at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, all of us, because of our sin, have fallen short of God's righteous standards, or as it says there, the glory of God. Then we looked at Romans 6, 23, which tells us that apart from Jesus, death is the result of our sin, especially spiritual death. All right? And then Romans 5, 8, we looked at as well. And that's where we discovered that God's love is proved, it's demonstrated by Jesus' willing sacrifice of himself. And then finally, last week, Pastor Daniel had us take a look at Romans 10, 9. And there's where we learned that true confession of Jesus as our Lord results in our salvation. Now, Romans 5, verse 1, and then verses 2 through 5, what does that tell us? Two things. Jesus provides real peace with God by, first of all, verse 1, providing our foundation, foundation for our salvation, which is justification by faith. And then, as we look at verses 2 through 5 that follow, Jesus provides real joy with God by providing for our spiritual growth. And that we're going to call sanctification, which basically means to grow to become more like Jesus. All right, let's read the passage then. All right, so read with me Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in the hope of our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not, is not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right. Providing our foundation, 
Justification by faith. Let's just spend some time on this verse because there's a lot in here. First of all, therefore, good rule for studying the Bible is this. Whenever you see the word therefore, ask wherefore is that therefore, therefore. Yeah, it's a tongue twister. You see, Paul puts that word therefore because he's looking back. He's looking back at what he has written earlier, and he wants us to do the same. He's looking back, guys, actually all the way to what we would call Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 4, verse 25. And we don't have time, obviously, even with the time change, sorry, to read all those verses. So let me just kind of cherry pick some key ideas here, all right? So if we go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 21. Here's what Paul wrote there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then I'll jump down to chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. All right, those verses tell us that there is the spiritual reality of the wrath of God. It's not like an explosive anger that God has with his wrath. It is his animosity, his fixed, strong dislike, total abhorrence of sin. God cannot tolerate sin. And the problem is, as we're told there, is that all of us are basically under sin. And to drive that point home, If you go over to chapter three of Romans, Paul strings together a number of quotes from the Old Testament to drive this point home, our sin problem. So in Romans chapter three, beginning at verse 10, he starts quoting these verses, and here's what he says. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to, speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Boy, that all down, it comes down to this. We're in trouble. Big trouble. And then when you get to chapter four, Paul shifts gears. And he brings up Abraham basically the father, humanly speaking, of the Jewish nation. Because the Jews believed that if there was anybody who earned right standing with God by his works, it was Abraham. And Paul points out in Romans chapter four, that's not true. So in Romans chapter four, verse one, here's what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, in other words, by what he did, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him. It's another way to translate that as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was saved by the Lord not because of his works, but because of his faith. His faith in believing in God's promise. That's what saved him. Abraham was not just simply a human forefather. He's also an example to us of what faith is all about. So therefore, laying that foundation, take a look again at verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the key verb there, have been. In other words, this is done. Bible scholars call this a divine passive. That means this is something that God does that we cannot do ourselves. God saves us. God, as we believe in Jesus, justifies us. Now, what does justification mean? Well, the simplest definition I could come up with on justification was this. It is when God gives us Christ's perfect righteousness. With our sins cleansed away, we can now have a relationship with God through Jesus. And that idea of a relationship, that's called reconciliation. You see, and we've talked about this before in this series, God didn't simply save us so that we would have salvation. I mean, that's beautiful, all right? Something that we could never possibly earn. But God saved us because he wanted a relationship. He wanted a friendship with each and every one of us. The almighty God of the universe wants to be our friend. Now, there's an issue in this verse Some of you guys might see it in your Bible translations. And the issue is this. Let me see if I can say these words correctly from the Greek. Did Paul, when he dictated, because he dictated Romans to a fellow named Tertius, his secretary, who wrote down what Paul was saying, according to Romans 16, verse something. Did Paul say, at common, or did he say, at common? And he might say, Who cares? You say tomato, I say tomato. Actually, it does matter. Because, according to one way of saying this, Paul says, we have salvation. On the other way, he says, let us have salvation. Do you see the difference? Most likely what Paul said is that we have salvation, meaning we possess it now because we trusted, because we believed in Jesus, we are justified by faith. It is a fact, it is something that was rock solid, all right? But for those of us who have never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, They don't have salvation. So in their case, 
Let us have salvation in Jesus is the idea. You catch the difference? All right. So, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, that's kind of the big idea, part of the big idea we're focusing on here. So let's just talk briefly about four facts about God's peace, okay, before we move on. First fact, number one, about God's peace is this. It's not for anyone who rejects God. Sadly, there's a lot of folks in our world who are deceiving themselves, thinking they have peace with God, and they don't. Because peace with God is only through Christ. So it's not for anyone who rejects God. For example, Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, it says this, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Remember a couple days ago, uh, if you're watching the news like we were, the water level at the upper current, anybody see that? Okay, I mean, ordinarily, the upper Kern, talking about where the river flows past Kernville and Walford Heights, you know, several hundred feet, ordinarily, less than a thousand feet per second flowing through that thing, it was into the tens of thousands, all right? And it was flowing just, it was almost cresting at the lower half of this bridge, and where the park is supposed to be where people can barbecue and play on the toys, it's under about eight feet of raging water. And that picture of that water raging that you didn't dare go in because it would kill you, that's a picture of what it's like for the wicked. They have no peace. Second, peace with God, it's both objective and subjective. Now, by objective, I mean It's a fact. It's a certain reality that you can count upon, all right? Regardless of what we feel, because a lot of times, you would agree with me, I think, our feelings, our emotions can trip us up. That's why we have to come back to the facts of Scripture so often. So peace with God, first of all, it is an objective reality, it's a fact. It does not change based upon our feelings, but... It's also subjective because it's meant to be part of our experience. In other words, God wants us to experience his peace. Coming back to Martin Luther, Martin Luther had no peace with God and then he got saved because he studied passages like Romans chapter five, verse one, Not only was he objectively saved and experienced God's peace, but he had that sense of peace that never left him for the rest of his life. Number three, third fact about peace with God, it's far more, far more than the absence of conflict. It's not just a ceasefire or a peace treaty. It is God's shalom. And sadly, that Hebrew word shalom, it's translated most often as peace in English, but that really does not capture the richness of the word. 
Shalom means wholeness, healing, restoration, peace. Recently on Netflix, they've been showing a remake of the old story, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is based off of a German novel. Now, I have not seen this recent remake, but I have seen a movie, TV movie that was made over 40 years ago. I used to show it to my students. The story revolves around a German private, ordinary soldier named Paul Baumer. And Paul served over three years on the German army during World War I. And during that time, he saw his buddies get killed. He saw his buddies go crazy. He saw everyone around him, even if they survived, they were forever damaged by the war. They had no peace. They had no healing. They had no wholeness. Even after the war was over. That's why, as Peter, one of our security guys, reminded me between services, that's why they were called the lost generation, those people. God's peace is totally different. A couple of verses from Isaiah describing God's peace. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. In other words, it never stops. Fourth fact about God's peace, it means we will never be condemned for our sin. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no what? Oh, come on, you can say it louder than that. There's no what for those who are in Christ Jesus we will experience forever that peace. But, finish off the verse. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no real peace with God apart from Jesus. So Acts 4.12, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And then Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right. So first of all, Jesus provides a foundation for peace with God through justification by faith. After we have gotten saved... He then is providing for our spiritual growth, and that's in verses two through five. Let me read those verses again, all right, before we take a look at this. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. 
All right. Now that we have peace with God through Jesus, we can experience, according to these verses, four benefits. Four benefits that help us to grow to be more like Jesus. Benefit number one, access to God. This is an ongoing blessing. Because the way Paul is saying this in verse two, guys, the fact that we have obtained this and that we now stand in it, the idea is that it's something that we experience when we first come to know Jesus and it's something that we experience throughout the rest of our Christian life. There is never a time we do not have access to God through Christ. It's an ongoing reality. So using this word access in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, through him we both, both being both Gentiles and non-Gentiles, excuse me, Gentiles and Jews, we, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then a little later, Ephesians 2.18, in whom, that's Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then I'll let you read on your own what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22, where he says, through Jesus, we have a living hope We constantly, through his flesh, through his sacrifice on the cross, have access to God. Then he says, let us rejoice in that. Do you remember Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Now, I'm I'm not talking so much about the more recent film because frankly, that Willy Wonka was kind of mentally disturbed, okay? But in the older movie, where Gene Wilder played the part, it's like you wanted to get into that factory. But there was only one way in? Yes. And there was only five golden tickets. So of course there was a run on Willy Wonka chocolate because everybody wanted a golden ticket. I've got a golden ticket. That's access. Okay? Second benefit, experiencing God's glory. Notice Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, in the Old Testament, it was really, really difficult when God's glory showed up. Okay? We're talking about what some people call the Shekinah glory of God. All right? Literally, the Hebrew word translated glory, you could also translate it heavy. Okay, it carries both meanings. So when they finished building the tabernacle back in the book of Exodus, you know, this roving tent that they could take with them as they went through the wilderness, the tent was all done, the priests were ready to go, all the objects were ready to go, the Ark of the Covenant was all built. There was one problem, God's glory hadn't shown up. And then in Exodus chapter 40, the glory shows up. God's glory descends upon that tent and Aaron and his sons could not carry out their priestly duties. Literally, they were chased out of the tent because God's presence was overwhelming. Skip ahead 400 years. Solomon builds this magnificent 
temple that took over seven years to construct, even after King David had gathered for Solomon all the materials to build the temple, but they finally got it done. The building was ready, the priests were ready, everything was ready to worship, but where's God's glory? And then in 1 Kings chapter eight, the glory comes and descends, and once more, the priest could not stand in the temple because of God's overwhelming presence. Skip ahead to the New Testament. Jesus comes, and according to John 1.14, he revealed God's glory in his incarnation. And then later, John would write near the end of his long ministry in 1 John chapter 1, he would say, we have seen his glory. We have witnessed it. We have touched it. It was there. But most of the time, God's glory in Jesus was veiled. Occasionally, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave them a brief, short glimpse of his glory as his clothes became dazzling white, and only Peter, James, and John saw it on that mountain. But in the future, in the new Jerusalem, upon Jesus' return, and in our new home, we will experience the full manifestation of God's glory. Yeah, that's something to clap about. I don't have time to read all of Revelation 21 and 22. You do that on your own. But according to Revelation 21, just verses 22 and 23, the apostle John was struggling to describe what God was revealing to him, but he wrote this as he looked at the new Jerusalem. He said, I did not see a temple in the city. The city is 1,400 miles wide, sideways, everything. It's a big cube. Why a cube? Because when God's glory was present in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tabernacle, it was always a cube, that building. Well, now you got a 1,400 square mile cube, okay? I did not see a temple in this city because the The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. We will be there for all eternity. That's something to rejoice about. That's part of the peace of God. Benefit... Number three, transformation. We're going to become more like Jesus. All right? Now, Paul writes something that, frankly, I have struggled with for years teaching this part of Romans, and I've struggled with it again, where he says at one point, notice in verse three, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not rejoice in my sufferings. Okay? And then I had to take another look at this because the reason why Paul says we could rejoice in our sufferings, one reason was there's always a purpose to the challenges the Lord brings us through. They're never meaningless. 
As Job himself wrote in Job 23.10, and he suffered a lot, of course, he says, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Paul, who also experienced a great deal of challenges and difficulties, to the Corinthians he wrote this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are transient, but it are the things that are unseen and eternal. You know why we have such a hard time with our trials, our difficulties, our suffering? Is a lot of times we focus on those things. And Paul's saying, don't focus on that. Focus on what God, how God is using those to transform you, to make you more and more like Jesus. Now, Pastor Daniel and I have something in common. We both work out. Why are you laughing? I true. It's true. It's amazing. One of the things as to why we need to exercise, okay, is because if we want to strengthen our muscles, let alone our bones, our entire body, we have to use resistance, don't we? Nobody is going to get healthier just laying around being a couch potato. That's not the way God designed our bodies. So muscle strengthening and resistance, that's part of the process. If we have to use that, guys, to strengthen our bodies physically, then what? Doesn't it make sense that God would use the same sort of thing to strengthen us spiritually? Yeah. Benefit number four, and it's in verse five, a peace with God is God's love through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse five again. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, there's two things we need to notice in this verse about God's love through the Spirit. First of all, notice Paul says, he has been given to us. See, that's in the past. The Holy Spirit entered our lives when we got born again. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus in John chapter three, when he was telling this teacher of Israel that he had to be born of water, referring most likely to the baptism of John, and be born of the spirit, which Nicodemus should have immediately picked up on passages in the Old Testament because he knew the Old Testament like we would know the back of our hand. He knew places like Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, talking about the sprinkling of water and the presence of the Spirit, symbolizing the new birth, the new covenant. So we have been born again. But if we have been born again, Paul also says, that we experience God's love when the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Now, that's the language of Pentecost. 
Remember Acts chapter two, when the spirit showed up, boom, and all of a sudden, 120 people are speaking languages that they did not know, that the other people are understanding, and they're all talking, 120 preachers, about the glory and the miracles of God. And people are wondering, what in the world is going on? And Peter gets up and delivers that sermon, and thousands of people got saved because the Spirit of God arrived. And later on, when the early church was being attacked and told, do not tell people anymore about Jesus. So they got a prayer meeting. They gathered together, and rather than pray for protection, they prayed and asked God to help them to be bold, to be witnesses. And we're told in Acts 4.31, when they prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Right now, it's frozen up. But if you've ever been to Yosemite Valley in Yosemite Park, you've seen where Yosemite Falls comes down, right? It's actually three different waterfalls, I understand. But the total drop from the top to the bottom into the valley is over 2,400 feet. Now, right now, it's probably not doing much of anything because the big warm-up that we had melted a lot of the snow basically at about the 4,000-foot level. Well, Yosemite Falls is quite a bit higher than that. But imagine... Late May, early Maine, when all of this snow we have up there in the Sierra Nevadas melts and that water begins coming down off of that falls. When you can hear it for miles. That's a visual picture of the spirit moving. And by the way, guys, we're starting to get inklings of this. Some of you undoubtedly have heard about the revival that happened at Ashbury College in Kentucky, which has now spread to other college campuses, some of them Christian, some of them not. But we're told, Jesus himself said, in the last days, the time leading up to his return, that the gospel would be preached to all the nations and then the end would come. We are living in a time a tremendous time when God is moving, and I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that. God, through his spirit, moving, pouring out his power, calling people to Jesus, calling people to grow and to be discipled, that's what Paul is discussing. That's a benefit of growing in our walk with Jesus. Now, as we wrap up our sermon, wrap up our message, there is one question. One question that I want to leave us with, and it's simply this. Do you have peace with God? You see, there's two different ways to approach that question. Do you have peace with God? The first way involves someone like Martin Luther. Luther knew he did not have peace with God. He did not until he came to Jesus and experienced salvation. The other way 
to answer the question, do you have peace with God, is maybe you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you have not had peace with God for a long time, for whatever reason. You too can have peace with God, but in your case, in cases like us for us, it means to come to Jesus for restoration. He's the source of peace with God, whether it's salvation or whether it is to be restored in our walk with him. He is still the one and only one that provides us peace. So as Nate plays and sings, we're going to have an opportunity. Folks want to come forward for prayer in response to something in the message or for anything else. We want to give people an opportunity to do that. So... You come at the Lord's beckoning you to do business with him.